You're listening to NapaBroadcasting.com, Napa Valley Radio for the way we live now. Welcome back to NapaBroadcasting.com. Robert Louis Stevenson may have called it bottled poetry, but for those of us here in the Valley, it's also bottled revenue. The wine industry is the lifeblood of our economy and certainly has been responsive to and a reflection of the broader national and global economy. How then is the premium wine business doing in this booming economy? And in return, what might the business tell us about the global financial landscape? For the answer to that, we don't have to go to Davos, but just right here in St. Helena, where we find our guest, Rob McMillan. He's executive vice president and founder of Silicon Valley Bank's wine division based in St. Helena. Each year, Silicon Valley Bank issues a report on the state of the wine industry. This year, the report was officially released yesterday, and it is my pleasure to welcome Rob McMillan to NapaBroadcasting.com. Rob, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me, Jeff. I appreciate it. Great to have you here. First of all, before we talk about uh, the prospects for 2015, let's talk a little bit about 2014. How was 2014 for the wine business? It was good. Uh, When we did the forecast uh, last year, we said we expected sales growth in fine wine between 6 to 10%. And uh, I expect that it'll probably be at the upper end of that range when all the math is, is computed. And, um, you know, that was, a, that was actually a good forecast from the standpoint that it was the first time in several years that we had actually predicted and seen a, uh, an increase in the uh, sales growth range like that. So, so that was good. That was good. And, uh, and we, I think we, I think I think we hit the sales growth number on the head for fifth or sixth year in a row now. Define for our listeners what really constitutes the market for fine wine. What's the price point that moves it into that category? Well, we there is no good definition. If you go back into the you know seventies, eighties, uh, we used to talk about a popular premium, premium, and you know back then we were talking you know three to five dollar price points. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it was another era, but um, you know, for our purposes, we define fine wine as anything over twenty dollars. And the reason that we pick that is uh, there are three or four different databases that I can use, and each of those have twenty dollars um, as a bottom point. And uh, some of them are you know a little bit higher than that. But from using all of those databases, we can um, get a pretty good idea about what's happening in what is otherwise a very private market. One of the things you talk about in the report is that those wines below twenty dollars, the the bulk wine market, essentially, there there first of all hasn't been the same kind of growth, and in fact, there's been a bit of a decline. Yeah, it's unfortunate, I think, and it's a, it's a problem for the industry as a whole. Um, but our, our Central Valley um, has um, always been effectively the gateway for fine wine consumption. Most of us learn to drink wine. If we live in California, we probably started with uh, some of those wines made out of the Central Valley. And um, you know, the price of land goes up, and uh, probably more important, uh, somewhere uh, in the early 2000s, we started to import bulk wine from foreign countries, and um, uh, those wines now are put into bottles produced in the United States, but when you turn the label around, you look at the backside, it says product of Chile, product of Argentina, product of France, whatever. And, um, you know, that, that worldwide competition has been, I think, part of the problem. And then just economics. Um, you know, if you, have a, if you have a commodity, you want to go back over time and look at sugar cane. You want to look at 
pineapples or whatever, you're going to find that anything that becomes a commodity just gets uh, redistributed to some other economy in some other country um, if land prices go up too high. And uh, that's kind of what we have now as a problem. And there's alternative crops, there's pistachios and, and almonds and uh, other things that, that compete for that, uh, that, that ground space. And, of course, we have water issues as well. You know, we can probably do a lot better job if, um, if we as an industry started to spend a little bit more time talking about the quality of wines made um, in the Sacramento Central Valley, Lodi, and, um, and use those as benchmarks for, uh, for other wines produced in, um, in uh, higher-priced uh, uh, appellations. One of the things that seems to complicate this issue is the millennia, the growing millennial market and the way they are looking at wine, particularly some of these foreign wines. Talk a little about that. Yeah, there's, there is a lot of, of misinformation. And um, you know, it starts with the notion that the millennials are the largest um, uh, generation. Um, and while they are, are large, you have to recognize that Generations, uh, in terms of cohorts, they're measured by different bands. It's uh, it's some demographics, uh, some demographer's idea of of uh, a group of people that may or may not be uh, similar. Um, and generally speaking, we have you know boomers, which are a certain number of years, and then we have uh, Gen X, which are a smaller number of years. So we say, well, Gen X is you know, it's a, a smaller co- cohort. It's not as important. And then we get down to millennials, and it's, there's more years than Gen X, and we say, well, it's very important. But it's, uh, you know, really what uh, the millennial side suffers from is, of course, student loans that are through the roof. And uh, when they graduate, they get $100,000 of debt on their plate, and then you've got to get through uh, uh, the recovery. And we're starting to see, though, um, a little bit better, um, I think, a little bit better purchasing by millennials, really for the first time in our studies, we show that they're um, above the, the oldest generation. Um, every other time we've looked at that, uh, we found the millennials in terms of wine purchases to be in the very bottom. It's not because they don't have the appetite. It's because that they really just don't have the opportunity with their finances to to go out and, uh, and buy lots of $20 wines and making a a real dent in the fine wine business. But that's, I think that's just starting to change. We're just starting to see the numbers um, indicate, um, you know, that uh, not surprisingly, as they start to move further in their careers, the leading edge of that now hits about 35. And, uh, hey, now we got a little bit of extra money. Let's go buy a couple bottles. And so... We're, uh, we're depending on those millennials <laughs> at some point in the future. One of the things you also talk about is that the wine industry in general has not been as successful as it could be or as aggressive as it should be in terms of its digital presence. What impact has that had on the success of bringing more millennials into the wine market? Uh, probably none. Um, strangely, uh, there's a, uh, a recent study that was done, um, I think, in the fall and released in Germany by Cal Poly. And uh, they they went and I think it was about a 1,000 consumers that they interviewed, and they talked about online wine purchases. And while you would expect millennials to dominate that, uh, it turns out they were last. Um, and again, that's just, I think it just reflects the fact that there's a, a purchasing um, issue there. They they don't really have the money at this point to uh, to, to make that dent. 
Um, but in terms of the, the wine producing, uh, the wineries themselves, the, that side of the equation, that's the place where we're really, really lagging. And, um, you know, you, you go back and look at uh, any retail store you walk into right now, as an example, they ask you, are you an awards club member? Are you a blah, 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 you know, fill in the blank. And all that information is being tracked somewhere, and, and then that helps them understand what you like. That helps couponing. There's a whole level of retail um, that we really uh, haven't even begun to even scratch the surface of in um, in wine sales, and that's a that's the piece that we're, I think, going to struggle with, continue to struggle with. We've been lagging in uh, technology probably uh, at least since. Uh, well, when I started in the business, we were still on Coleman pads, despite the fact there were lots of TCs out there. People <laughs> were still writing their financial statements down with paper and pen, so we always assumed to lag. Is this a problem within the industry itself, or is it simply that nobody on the tech side has really found a strong enough market to really be aggressive in creating the software and creating the ability to do this? A little of everything. Um, but it really gets down to the market itself. We, we think of the wine business as being huge. But when you look at the, the North Coast, if you look at Napa and Sonoma, at best we have 400 wineries on each side. And when you're trying to create a technological product that's specific to an industry like this, that's just not enough people, <laughs> not, enough, not enough places to sell your product. So, um, you know, you're not going to really be able to do that. And then, and then the other part, of course, is just the scale. These really are small family farms, small family uh, operations. Uh, I had a, a, a technology uh, company once come in and they had a, a really interesting product that said, well, you know, we're going to be able to tell everybody what the depletions is and for your audience that doesn't know, depletions um, are um, when the wine is actually uh, sold at, at the retailer and, and, you know, you're able to uh, to see how the the, the wine flows through from you, the producer, through the distributor, down to the retailer, and eventually to the consumer. And it sounded like a really, really good idea. And then I asked them, uh, you know, how much, how much you're going to charge for it? And they said uh, $100,000 a year. <laughs> and I said, well, that's, you know, you're talking about uh, the profit of, of an entire year for, uh, for some wineries. I, I don't think you're really going to be very successful with that. But they had not done their math. They had not done their research. They hadn't figured out that, uh, you know, the size of the industry and what they were really producing you know, wasn't going to be specific to um, or sufficient for that product. And they ended up uh, with about, uh, I think they had like 13 clients at, at the end. And, you know, it's, it's gone along as an as a existing business. But, mm-hmm. but that's a mistake I think that a lot of people make. It's just not that big of a business. And the technology will probably always lag because of its fragmented nature, because of the cost. Um, and because uh, small businesses have to wear lots of hats. One of the things that we're seeing, or we seem to be seeing, is more and more large companies, the large players in aggregating within the wine business, particularly in the premium wine side. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it's um, it's something that's been going on for a long time, and it really starts um, with big box retailers. You start putting the large retailers in place and the distributors then have to, to uh, facilitate wine moving into those uh, stores. And um, the distributors would just as soon um, have wineries that are 
able to, uh, you know, accommodate lots, if not all of those stores, so that they don't have to keep re-educating uh, salespeople in terms of what their what their products are, and for other reasons too, in terms of, of uh, scalability and efficiencies. So it starts it starts there, and then it goes it floods back to the to the distributor, and then you know we move back to the uh, to the small winery, and and the the wineries themselves just don't get that kind of distribution. As the larger wineries uh, are out there and do have that distribution, they start getting scale uh, blocks. They've got to find new ways to produce their wines. And so they start to look for um, either new regions. If you look at um, a lot of wineries, KJ is an example, Duckhorn, uh, they're looking at the Pacific Northwest now as uh, as good opportunities for uh, expanding their production. You know, they have to go up there because they have um, a lot of wine that they need to sell uh, nationally. But that's not the footprint for uh, most of the wineries that are in the Napa and Sonoma Valleys. You talk about 20% of the wineries outperforming the bottom 80%. Expand on that a little bit. Well, it's it, it's actually, I'm going to say it's a true statement because I said it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, um, yeah, you, you, what you find is that the, um, the 20% that have dialed in uh, distribution, um, they do they do just fine, but there's a a, a large uh, percentage um, that is also in the direct uh, to consumer or they're on a uh, uh, an allocated model where they sell 100% of wine and, and those guys do just fine um, as well, um, but uh, you know the larger number of wineries are um, are those that love being in the business are willing to uh, you know effectively uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, you know, that was, I was going to say substantiate, but you know, feed feed the business extra extra capital, mm-hmm. um, so that uh, so that they they don't really have to make the profit that they might otherwise uh, need to if they were in another business. Kind of stumbled over that, but you know, it's the right. it's the fact that they're they're just happy to be in the business, and um, and that kind of an, of an attitude leads to a lot of flat. Um, not that profitable companies, and uh, I think that the uh, average consumer, specifically um, in the Bay Area, looks at the wine business and says, "Well, it's a bunch of rich people." And, um, and in fact, uh, the wine business on the whole is not that profitable um, on, on a bottom line basis. Mm-hmm. To what extent is the industry being held back or limited? by a bunch of antiquated regulatory issues and even an antiquated three-tier distribution system. To what extent is that a problem? And if that were changed, would it really broaden the, the, the bottom line of the industry? I, I'm going to be a, a little bit of a uh, an outlier here when, with my answer. And so the three-tier system is, is put in place at the repeal of prohibition, so that uh, states could get full control of the um, of the uh, movement of alcohol within their borders and, and its taxation, etc. And um, you know, at the time, they had to go to uh, the folks who were actually moving the wine, which was um, a lot of mafia-owned companies back back in that in that period of time. And uh, and there's a lot of, of uh, uh, laws that went into the books uh, in various states and, and even the, uh, with repeal that um, just don't make a lot of sense. And, and in fact, to this day, uh, the wholesale lobby and distribution 
has a tremendous amount of power in the country. So it makes it very, very difficult for a lot of these small wineries um, to get uh, the kind of placements that they would otherwise like. Um, go back into the uh, the middle 90s and everybody could sell anything. The distributors were begging for wine just because there was such such uh, strong demand relative to what we were making. And you move past 2000, that totally flips itself on its head. And, and without the advent of, um, of direct consumer sales and the Granholm law that... Uh, allowed some interstate uh, uh, shipping of wine, the industry would look uh, would look very, very different than it does today. And so on the one hand, while you can say, well, if we got rid of those laws and made it simpler, uh, what would happen? Well, you probably would see a more competitive price on the shelf. But I think you'd also see a lot of these small guys uh, suffer even more because they have absolutely no pull <laughs> With a distributor, at least a distributor, um, you know, owns his market today, and uh, you open it up even further, and it's just—I uh, I wonder about that. And then the second thing it does is, um, at this point, if you—we have targets on our back. We're the largest consuming uh, country in the world, but it's very difficult for these uh, other countries to get their wine distributed here. Well, why is that? It's because of the strength of the wholesalers, and the wholesalers have these relationships with larger wineries, larger spirits producers, etc. And it's not hard for them to say no. Um, you know, we, here we're going we're gonna to stick with the date that we brought to the party, and, you know, good luck for you. So there is one benefit to, um, to having this in place, and that is that it does kind of uh, keep a home field advantage for, uh, for a lot of the, uh, the producing uh, wineries in the U.S. So it's a little bit of a, of a paradox, but, uh, but I, I think it might make things worse <laughs> if, it was, if it was just absolutely repealed. But does that sense of protectionism, which is essentially what it is, does that really get in our way in terms of our ability to export premium wine to the rest of the world? Protectionism, I think in the, in the long run, protectionism is always going to be bad. And, and, and clearly today, at some point, we're going to uh, you know, figure out our way around all of this stuff, and we might as well just get rid of that stuff, all that stuff in the middle <clears throat> that, uh, that just adds to uh, the cumbersome nature of it. Uh, you know, the U.S. doesn't export um, a lot of its wines, and uh, you know maybe at some point we will. But today we're the largest consuming country, so we don't really need to export that much. Um, you know, actually we—it's kind of interesting, but we we drink all of our of our wine, especially our good wine, it seems. And when you go to other countries, they look at wine. I've you know I've been in uh, in Japan, China, and in in various places in Europe, and, and a lot of the consumers there think that uh, our wines are jug wines. They're, they're inexpensive, and they're, and they're uh, not particularly um, you know, built in such a way that they have any sort of personality. So um, you know, the export side of it probably, probably doesn't matter. And there's other countries that are like that, too. It's, if you travel around and do some wine tourism, it's always interesting because they always keep their good stuff, it seems, and, uh, <laughs> and we're certainly at the, at the head of the class from that standpoint. Is China a significant player in terms of it being a growing market and, and a growing appreciation there for American wines, for wine in general and American wines in particular? 
Yeah, it's it's a it's a long term thing, and um, you know China at this point is the fifth largest producer of wine in the world, so it's uh, probably a surprise to a lot of people. But as in a lot of things in China, they they really are more interested in turning their economy into a, a consuming country versus a producing country, as they've been for the, as long as most of us have been alive, uh, at least since they've um, uh, you know opened up. Um, Opened up the, the trade barriers that existed uh, before our ping pong uh, ping pong um, diplomacy with uh, President uh, Nixon. We have to go back in time a little bit for that at this point. Uh, but China's, uh, although there's a lot of people, whether or not you can actually convince them to like the wines that we produce is another question. And uh, you talk to the Australians, and they're still wondering if they've ever made money there. Um, you know, the average consumer is, uh, you know, about maybe $10,000 U.S. a year. So affording, a, you know, an expensive bottle of wine, which might be $10, uh, is probably not something you want to do. And then, and then there's just a difference in culture that has to be factored in. Uh, uh, anybody that's traveled over there will tell you that the, um, the Chinese have a very practical perspective on drinking, and, uh, you know, and, you know, of course, in the Japanese restaurants, you say kampai, you know, instead of cheers. And in China, you say gambei, which is bottoms up, or drink it all. And their practical reality is, is they, they drink to get drunk. So, <laughs> so um, you know, for, for fine wine, it's a, it's a little bit of a conflict because we're not really making wines to get drunk. Where we're making, you know, in our we look at it, it's something to pair with food, it's just, it's just a whole different culture behind that. And the Chinese that are, that are at this point uh, embracing fine wine, what they're really doing is they're just being, uh, they're being consumers that are uh, early adopters. And um, uh, although uh, the French are certainly glad that the uh, Chinese were there to buy up a, a lot of the Bordeaux, um, it was out there after the Great Recession. Uh, it started to unwind itself now as the government has started to crack down on uh, public dis- uh, displays of wealth. So we're not seeing the kind of growth that you would otherwise expect, and it's, and it's due to those two factors. One, I don't think we've dialed in on the consumer. And two, they're the fifth, fifth largest producing uh, country in the world in terms of wine grapes. So uh, it's a question whether or not we'll ever... China as being a great export. One of the things the report talks about are some of the shifting regional aspects of planting and the growth in places like Oregon and Washington. To what extent is there concern with respect to the growth of the premium and fine wine market with respect to climate change and the impact that that might have? When you talk to uh, you know pretty much anybody in the wine industry, it's a it's a very uh, eco friendly uh, green. Uh, minded uh, group of people. Everybody's looking for, you know, the buzzword of sustainability. Can mean, I'm not sure that's actually a defined term at this point. It's kind of more bastardized than anything else, I'm afraid. But that's what everybody's looking for. They're looking for something that's going to be, you know, uh, it's going to fit in with the earth. It's going to, you know, we're going to not leave a bad carbon footprint the way we ship goods. So all those kind of um, uh, thoughts are, are in there. When it comes to when it comes to uh, uh, climate change, um, there's there's always uh, a debate. It's a it's a lessening debate, but I I just have a tendency to say, well, look, you know, if you want to talk about climate, you know, 
you can't you can't argue that the ice caps are melting. <laughs> you know, so so let's just talk about what is versus what might be. And what you can say is ice caps are melting. What you can say is no matter how you think about it, California is in a drought uh, a drought prone state, and uh, and we, we go through periods of time where drought is, can be severe. So um, the industry itself obviously needs water to survive. And so whether you believe in climate change or you don't, it doesn't change your behavior. You've got to do the things that are uh, required to improve your, um, your carbon footprint, to make sure that your, you know, your water consumption is, is in line, because otherwise you find yourself in a, in a point which many of our Central Valley farmers did this last year, where they just don't have water. And, um, you know, that's not a good thing for a plant. And finally, Rob, talk a little bit about Silicon Valley Bank and how long it's been active in the wine business and a little bit about the evolution of, of your efforts to create a wine division for Silicon Valley Bank. Yeah, we, um, it was, uh, it was, I think it, as in a lot of things, you've you got to kind of be lucky and good and you got to, timing's got to be right. Um, I started a, a business plan in the, uh, uh, in the early 90s for Silicon Valley Bank, um, looking at the wine business. At the time, I was a uh, White's Infidel and 7-Up drinker, so not not particularly well informed about the product, <laughs> but but I was very interested in the in the process. You know, it was a fully integrated industry, and the and the business dynamics of that were kind of interesting to me. And and then as I started to dig a little deeper. You start to meet a different, different kind of people. The people are fascinating. They come from everywhere. There's no way to describe somebody that's, that is in the wine industry. They just, they're just, they're not homogeneous <laughs> at all. They're from every single background, country, race, breed, color. It, it's, uh, it's just a hodgepodge. And that was just very interesting to me. And when I, when I looked at it, what I discovered was, um, this was at a time when wine consumption was actually had been trending down um, at the in the in the late 80s, and and there hadn't been any uptrend whatsoever. But I started to look at the, the the more expensive wines at the time, and I I thought I saw a change, and but it was only one data point, and you can't say that that's a trend <laughs> with one data point. But I did see uh, that none of the other banks really were interested in banking with the uh, the wine industry as a uh, as a focused enterprise. Everybody liked to think that they, you know, had a person or two that liked wine or understood it. And so, rather than take that approach, we just did what we did at Silicon Valley Bank, which is to you know focus fully and uh, effectively burn all the, the lifeboats. We we couldn't just come in or lead the business when when it was good or bad or. Uh, were timely. We just had to stay in it and uh, and fight along with our with our clients, and it seemed to resonate. And, and on top of that, um, right when we got in, ended up that one data point ended up being the bottom of the market, and uh, that's right at that point where um, the uh, the wine business, especially on the North Coast, really started to take off. So uh, the timing couldn't have been couldn't have been better for us, and now we're uh, about a billion dollars. In the uh, in the wine industry, and 35 people that, that are in uh, both Napa and Sonoma and cover the full uh, the full West Coast, and it's uh, it's ended up being a lot of fun. And I, I drink more than White Sonoma and Seven Up, but uh, <laughs> I still enjoy that once in a while. Rob McMillan, he's the executive vice president and founder of Silicon Valley Bank's wine division. 
Rob, I thank you so much for spending time with us on NapaBroadcasting.com today. Hey, I enjoyed it a lot. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you. Local voices, local conversations. NapaBroadcasting.com.